Hi, this is Donnie Kerr from Jersey Boys, the Who's Tommy and Rockers on Broadway. You are listening to Follow Your Dream podcast, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. I'm pleased to tell you that my Follow Your Dream handbook is now out and available. The handbook is a combination memoir of my musical journey and a step-by-step how-to book. Plus, it's got a whole bunch of very cool photos of my life and my career. I wrote the handbook as an extension of this podcast to help everyone to pursue and succeed at their dream, whatever it may be. The reviews have been just spectacular. It's been called inspiring, extremely helpful, highly readable, the guiding light, and a true literary treasure. So pick up the Follow Your Dream handbook today. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. My guest today is Alan Burroughs. I call Alan a multi-threat artist. He's the artistic director for Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts, where he's also been a director and an actor. He's done off-Broadway in things like Killer Joe. He's been on TV in shows like Law & Order, and in films, including Manchester by the Sea. Alan graciously hosted my band, Project Grand Slam, this summer, and we performed a benefit concert for Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. My featured song in this episode, and I always have a featured song in all of my episodes, and I try and relate it somehow to my guest, for the subject matter is called Stockbridge Fanfare and it's from our album East Side Sessions. We played it at the Benefit concert. It's all about the town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is just one town over from Lenox, Massachusetts in the Berkshires. And uh, I thought it was perfectly appropriate for Alan Burroughs. So Alan, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thanks, Robert. Great to be here. That was a beautiful song, and hearing it at uh, at the at the fundraiser at the benefit was particularly poignant because not only is it a great song, but to have it about such a local spot that's so dear to all of us was really special. And it was a great evening. I got to tell you, for your fans, you know, you guys really took the roof off the place. I thought it was just a really rocking evening, but also a very moving evening as well with all the ballads that you did and uh really people were really happy and came out for it it was uh, really full and um you know just in these times to be able to do such a special evening like that you know in navigating all the covid regulations and everything and the way people kind of kept their sense of humor and on top of that the fact that i've had a long-standing desire to have more music on the property and you really did us proud by um by bringing your band 
to us. It was really great. Well, thank you very, very much. Yeah. It was a special evening for everybody. I mean, it was in the middle of this uh, pandemic that we tried to do this, which is challenging as can be. You have a wonderful theater there that we played in, the Tina Packer Playhouse. And uh, the way it was set up, all the people that you had working the event, it was just a, a marvelous situation for everybody. And, you know, most people, I'm sure, are not going to be familiar with the fact that uh, Shakespeare and Company is on the grounds of what used to be the National Music Festival. I think that was what it was called. Yeah, the National Music Foundation. Foundation. Yeah, okay, yeah. close enough. Yeah, there. it was. Yeah, it was Dick Clark's old organization. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. But going back many years, I saw various concerts there. It was a great place to see concerts. Yeah, yeah. I saw. Let's see. Uh, Jimmy Cliff there. I saw Nancy Griffith, who sadly just passed away. And, um, you know, that was in a different part of the, the property. The space where you all performed in is an intimate 435-seat uh, house. So the audience is uh, right up close with the band, and they can, they can really feel the vibration of everything. It's not like a large amphitheater uh, like a lot of your fans may be used to. So let's go into the whole Shakespeare thing, because it, it fascinates me, not only that there's Shakespearean acting troops, of course, which you can find in a lot of places, but how did you get oriented to do Shakespearean plays? It was the only way that I could legitimately tell my dad that I was going to be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> it was the only way. I know it was going to be a bitter pill for him to swallow. I thought I would make it go down easier. Um, by telling him that I wanted to do Shakespeare mainly. When he was a, a kid growing up on the farm, he was given a nickel to read Shakespeare at large family gatherings twice a year because uh, my grandfather was, uh, was really into Shakespeare. So I thought I was carrying on some kind of family tradition. And then I just stumbled into Shakespeare and Company, I guess, in 1988 at, out of an audition in Boston then I came out and did a tour at Julius Caesar and then eventually became one of what's called the artist managers, where basically they save a buck. This was early days. They save a buck by making the actors do everything <laughs> in addition to acting. I see. And I started a pub for the company and made a lot of money for the company very fast mainly through recycling the actors' paychecks right back into the company because <laughs> they could cash their checks um, at the bar and then turn it into beer. And then after that, they put me on the board of directors. And then years, you know, I was in New York for 20 years, and then I ran a Shakespeare company in Boston for 10 years and just came back here five years ago because, uh, you know, I was, I'm, I'm intrigued to make this whole thing work. We have a 32-acre campus. We have four theaters on it now. I just built a new 550-seat outdoor amphitheater to complement the Tina Packer Playhouse, where you played. And Christopher Lloyd just uh, wrapped up playing King Lear out on the New Spruce Theater, which I built kind of as an answer to COVID, where people could come and feel comfortable being outside. And it was also done in reflection of where we used to be on Edith Wharton's estate just down the road where we used to perform in front of the pines down there. So that worked out really well. It was a fully sold out run for the summer. And um, I can testify that that new theater 
First of all, it was built in an amazingly short period of time because <laughs> when years. Alan and I were talking about doing this benefit concert over the summer, he takes me to this hole in the ground. Okay. And he says, well, this is going to be our new theater. And I'm, and I said, yeah, when is this going to be opening? I figured, you know, in about a year or something like this no, no, in about a week and a half, we're going to have this thing done. And I said, wait a minute, you got like a, a copper mine here. Okay. And I don't know how in the world you're going to make this into a real theater. And you know what? He did it. Yeah. Well, I didn't do it alone. I had uh, uh, Timbercraft designs come in and they brought in a hundred dump trucks of fill and also 1400 linear feet of granite out of the Chester quarry. And, uh, and I had my guys working alongside of them, not trying to get, trying not to get run over by bulldozers as they built the deck. So it was pretty crazy. It was I insane. Can I, uh, <laughs> I can imagine. All right. I want to talk to you about for a second about Christopher Lloyd, because, yeah. you know, he was your star this summer. He played King Lear. And, uh, you know, I had no idea that the guy was a Shakespearean quality actor. Hmm. I mean, we all know him, of course, as Doc Brown in the Back to the Future movies where he was magnificent. And before that, as Jim Ignatowski <laughs> in <laughs> Taxi, which, you know, for some of the people that are listening to this podcast, this goes back a ways, but he was just magnificent there. But the transition from... Jim Ignatowski to Doc Brown to King Lear. That's a mammoth transition. Right. Well, they, they all share a little something, really. You right. know, Let King me hear Lear what the sharing is. King, I want to get King that. King Lear and Reverend Jim. Uh, you know, Chris and I had been talking about having him do King Lear in the Tina Packer Playhouse in the summer of 2020. And, um, you know, I, I said, actually, we're going to cancel 2020, obviously. And it came to, are you still in? And he said, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, I'm learning this role. It gives me another year to learn my lines. <laughs> and, uh, and then we were only supposed to go to August because we usually switch in another show. And, uh, and then I said, I went back to him. I'm like, we want to run Lear all summer. Are you in for that? And he's like, oh yeah, that'll give me, I'll really get my feet under me by the end of that. And uh, of course, his manager wasn't too thrilled because I, you know, he, he, he committed to the whole summer under our aegis. But he um, was so generous and committed and serious about the work and, you know, devoted to the language and the relationships on stage. And he gave 110% every single rehearsal, never complained once. You know, he just, I gave him a company car to drive. It was this old black Cadillac that the windows <laughs> didn't go down on. And, it, and I was like, hey, I'm, so we're, we're, we're going to get those windows fixed eventually. He said, it's really only a problem at ATMs, you know. Where it, <laughs> and uh, I never ended up getting the windows fixed. The dealer gave us a runaround on that. And um, but he it was he was just such a delight to have here. And he um you know, because he is a serious actor, he's a veteran of 200 stage shows. He knew his way around the stage. And, you know, he, he was just a very powerful and unusual choice for Lear. But I really felt like he found um, uh, the storyline. He was he's right up there with with some of the greats, I think, of who played this role now. You know, how old is he now? He's just turned 83. I mean, to be able to remember all those lines, yeah. just remarkable. Yeah, 
And uh, I had I had done the show another time in another theater. I played Kent to Alvin Epstein's Lear, and Alvin Epstein had played the fool to Orson Welles's Lear in '55, <laughs> right? And uh, and Alvin Epstein, you know, he he's a tried and true stage actor, and Chris was right up there with him in terms of the command of the language and all the rest. But you know, I I just his manager just said to me, just make sure he's 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 fed because <laughs> he's so focused on the work. So every time I made myself a sandwich for rehearsal, I'd whack him out a sandwich. And some days he'd be like, "Really, tuna again?" You know. <laughs> now we should mention that you were in this production as well. Why don't you yes. tell everybody what you played? I I played the fool, and I was going to direct it, but. I um, I switched that out because when I canceled 2020, I had a lot of directors who were kind of left high and dry. So Nicole Ricciardi, I called her up one morning and I said, listen, I'm thinking of having you direct Lear instead of me. Uh, she said, oh, wow. I said, yeah, but you got to get dressed and get down to the Haven restaurant because I need you to meet Christopher Lloyd before we before we ink this. So she said, well, actually, I'm here right now. And he's sitting across the restaurant from me. So I said, well, that's fortuitous. Go introduce yourself. And then I played the fool, mainly not because I needed to play the fool, although it was a lot of fun, but because I wanted to make sure that he had his tuna sandwiches. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it like? I mean, this was uh, an extraordinary summer, just like the last one was extraordinary and I don't mean in a good way. It was obviously a weird, weird atmosphere in which you had to perform. Tell us what it was like running a professional theater company in the midst of a pandemic. Right. Well, we'd had experience performing outside. You know, I built the Roman Garden Theater when I first came back to the company five years ago. That was outside. That's a 300-seat house. The new one is a 543-seat house that we had to reduce for social distancing to 320. And uh, the weather patterns were totally different than anything we'd ever seen before. I mean, not only was it hot and not only were there torrential rains, but the rains came from a totally different direction. Usually they come from the southwest. Sometimes you'll get a nor'easter that will turn around on you. But these had a way of not showing up on the radar, these rainstorms. So you'd be like, we're good. We're good. Yeah. Open, you know, and then all of a sudden. 20 minutes later, you'd be, you'd be under a downpour and you'd be like, where did this come from? Well, fortunately, we had, because our indoor theaters were vacant for our long running shows, we could then slide inside to do like the remainder of the shows in like the Packer Playhouse. So it was one of the silver linings of COVID was one, we were able to build the outdoor theater and two, we had vacant indoor spaces to tuck into a couple of other other shows Measure for Measure and Art by Yasmina Reza. Both those shows opened and closed inside, and they were both outdoor shows. <laughs> the middle of the run was outdoors, but they opened inside and closed inside. So I guess it was fortuitous that you had the Packer Theater, okay? That's right. And we could have it available for you, too. <laughs> better, right? See, I thought you built it just for me, okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a pass on that. <laughs> My recent guest, John Melora, transitioned from working for NASA into becoming a fabulous, award-winning portrait photographer. 
How about that for following your dream? His creative and empowering portraits enable his subjects to be seen, heard, and look beautiful. Contact him today for your portrait. Just go to melorafoto.com. That's M-O-L-L-U-R-A photo.com. All right, I want to go back a little bit because you've had experience that goes way beyond just Shakespeare and company. And mm. I love the fact that you were on Law and Order. I mean, mm. it just seems like that's the training ground for for everybody. You know, every time I have an actor on the show, there's somewhere in the resume, Law and Order. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that and about your experience in TV. Right. Well, you know, Law and Order for us, because I was a journeyman actor for 20 years in New York, and that meant Generally, what you would do in the 90s, um, which was kind of my heyday, my salad days, if you will, is you would go out to a regional theater, uh, do a gig in a great theater, you know, Denver, the Denver Center for Performing Arts, or you go up to San Francisco, go to ACT, or you go, you know, down to Philadelphia and you do a show, and then you come back and you maybe get into an off-Broadway show. I didn't do musicals, so my chances of being on Broadway were somewhat limited in that way because there were, you know, there were fewer straight shows on Broadway, you know, but all, all the while you were, when you were in New York, uh, cause I, there were some years I spent 200 days on the road. Right. Wow. And, uh, but it was great. You met all your friends in the regional actors and in the regional theaters and everyone was coming back to New York at the end of the gig. Now, were you getting these acting jobs through an agent or do you yeah. do it yourself or how does that work? No, I, 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 had, I, have a, I had an agent in New York. I also had a commercial agent in New York. So, you know, I was like shooting Lowe's commercials. And then, you know, um, that, you know, that the, the, the key was it was always about the residual income. Right. And that was true with Law and Order, too. Like you'd get a couple of days on Law and Order, but then you'd get checks and they weren't big checks. Some <laughs> checks came in. They were 25 cents. But as the, as time went on. But Law and Order, you know, there was, I guess my first Law and Order, I'd shot this independent film and I had this really, I'd grown this terrible mustache for this independent film. And my, I went into my agent, I'm like, hey, I'm thinking of, uh, thinking of keep, keeping the mustache for this uh, Law and Order audition. They're like, you have to lose that mustache. It's hideous. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I think I'm, I think that's going to set me apart. And I got, and I got the gig and I, paraded my mustache back into my agent's office. I said, yeah, I got the mustache, got the job. <laughs> the mustache <basically>. got it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no law and order was, it, you know, uh, the acting community uh, has a lot to be thankful for, for law and order and that all the spinoffs, you know, there was, uh, I did uh, several spinoffs as well. And then, then all the other stuff that you could, were you up. a good guy or a bad guy on that show? I always was either bad guy or a dickhead i never ever <laughs> i think it was the mustache okay <laughs> no no just every oh that one oh yeah i was a real jerk on that one but i i you know it's it, i always got cast as as the as the villain i don't know why i looked like the guy next door you know what i mean but uh you don't look guy, that evil okay i'll give you that <laughs> no. uh, the villains are more fun to play anyway I can imagine. You know, I had one experience in television, which I've spoken about before. My band and I were on a show called Lipstick Jungle, <laughs> which was uh, starred Brooke Shields. Yeah. And this was in the early 2000s. 
and they somehow they needed a ban because on the show the the plot was that her husband had been in our band before and he's sitting in the audience with her and I call him up on stage to play with us. So they gave me one line to speak in the episode. Hmm. And it was nothing more than, you know, hey, so-and-so, come on up to the bandstand or something like that. Well, it took me about 38 takes, okay? I was scared to death. I can play anywhere musically, but I had to speak that one line. So I give yeah. you a lot of credit, okay? Right, I know. Once, once, they, once they yell, you know, rolling, and then you hear rolling, sound, and then action. All of a sudden, the blood is pounding in your ears. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? You can't, you, they, everything starts, and you're like, I just got to get through this. You know, it's funny though, but, well, my wife, for example, she's also an actor, and she, you know, she's got ice in her veins when it comes to TV stuff. You know, she, she was a Canadian actor. Uh, she had a couple of her own series up there before coming down to the States. And she is a craftsperson from the way, from the way, from, from the get go, because you really have to have um, that steadiness because there's so much money on the line. You know what I mean? Like minutes go by, the meter's running. You're right. You know, and once you, you, you want to hit it, you want to hit everything on your first take. You know, you talk about Law and Order. Uh, Jerry Orbach was a long time uh, actor on, and right. you know, you, you run into a guy like Jerry Orbach, and these are guys who, you know, they have great film and television careers, but when you're on the set with them, all they want to do is talk about theater. They hear that you're, uh, you know, they hear that you're a stage actor primarily. And they're like, they, they want to like trade stories about shows they were in. Back he was in a city. song and dance guy, wasn't oh, he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, Armand DeSante. Remember Armand DeSante? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, I did this thing for Italian TV with him years ago. And, um, you know, he just wanted, you know, I played a, I played his, driver his it was i was a they they asked if i was a if i could do stunt driving and of course i said of course of i course. do <laughs> you're the best you stunt driver in the world <laughs> you never say no when they ask you a question right. like that you know but uh yeah so it's uh it's it all it, it's all connected the stage work the tv work the film work and generally you know the the best film directors uh you know someone like kenneth lonergan they have they have a uh, they have a history with theater that really kind of grounds them in the work. They're always going for the truth of the moment, you know. Not that film and TV directors don't. It's just that they come at it from a different angle than the stage director. All right. So between the stage and TV and film, what's your favorite? Well, I like the I like the checks that come from film and TV <laughs> best. Uh, but uh, I have to say, there's there's nothing quite like the camaraderie of doing a, a stage show with actors and slogging away out there day after day with people and waiting for, you know, you, the audience is coming in and you know it's going to be a full house and you're all backstage waiting to get shot out of the gate. I have to say, there's nothing that really can match that. Did you ever have an experience, either at Shakespeare and Company or otherwise, where something went terribly wrong in the middle of the show. You know, somebody fell down, somebody forgot a line, something happened and you got to improvise. Oh, uh, that pretty much happens every show. <laughs> uh, it's usually when I'm out there too. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's tough to improvise in Shakespeare. When when you see someone who's lost their way and they start to improvise, that's always that's always a source of a lot of mirth. We call that a mirthquake. Yeah. But um, mirth you know, I did some long running shows in New York. Killer Joe, like you mentioned, Tracy. That was Tracy Let's first show in New York. Uh, I took over for Scott Glenn in that in a show called Bug. And you know, the thing about New York is already the tension is so high, right? Because it's New York. It's, right. That's your starting, that's your jumping off point. Right. And when shows are intense, then, you know, there was one, you know, um, Mike Shannon, who's now become a, um, you know, pretty well-known film actor. It was just when he was starting out. And uh, he was supposed to kill me in Bug. And the knife that he went to kill me in with uh, snapped in half as he was about to kill me. And all I heard him say under his breath was, oh, shit. Like, what are we going to do now? And I'm like, you know what? You're just going to have to kill me some other way. Kill me some other way. You know what I mean? Because I'll I'll blow. I'll explode the blood packs. You know, I mean, when he killed me in that show in Bug, it was a bloody it was all, you know, it was all controlled blood pack explosions on me. And uh, I'm like, you just, you, you know, you, you just, you mime it and, uh, Thank and you I'll right. make sure there's blood, you know. You know, the same thing in, in music. One of the good things about writing all my own music is that nobody knows when we screw up because it, it's, it's my stuff. Right. And I, I tell my musicians all the time, if you mess up, if you just forget something or you're way off in the wild blue yonder, don't show it. Okay. Yeah. There are actually sometimes I've seen this where either a musician or an actor just kind of stops and looks around in horror. Yeah. And of course, then the audience knows something is wrong. Yeah. But if you just kind of keep going, keep that smile on your face, just fake it, baby. Yeah. You're never going to know. Yeah. yeah. No, we have, I, I mean, I've been in situations where <clears throat> we have jumped pages of text, you know what I mean? And like, <laughs> Like they're not going to miss that part of the story, and if they do, they're purists. And uh, what are they doing here anyway? You know, yeah, <laughs> right. purists can take a hike. But um, yeah, no, and and it's always if someone goes up on their lines or something, it's always the other guy that looks bad anyway, because he's the guy who has he has to figure out what to say face. now. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Oh man, you know, it's all it's all that behind the scenes stuff that you don't really get to see as an audience, or you shouldn't see. But it happens. Yeah. No, it um, it's when, you know, when when things go wrong, there's usually a fair amount of uh, laughter that accompanies it, usually from the other people who uh, get to watch you try to fix whatever is happening out there. Right. So In real time. It makes for the great story, <laughs> for sure. All right. So what's up next for Alan Burroughs and Shakespeare and Company? What are you going to be doing? Well, this weekend, uh, we're opening a play called by Debbie Tucker Green in the Packer Playhouse, uh, directed by Reggie Life, called Hang, which is a very powerful three-hander. Uh, and, I, you know, it's, only, it's one of those plays that if you say too much, you give it away. But I will say this. A crime has been committed, and the fate of the perpetrator hangs in the balance. And that's all I'm going to say, because it's a very intriguing piece. Runs about 90 minutes without intermission. That runs from um, the, uh, tomorrow, the 10th, 
to October 3rd. And then after that, we're doing um, an absurd comedy called The Chairs by Eugene Ionesco, Ionesco, directed by James Warwick. And that runs from uh, October 8th, uh, 8th until the 31st. And that's an absurd comedy. You know, I figured what better time to slide in this absurd comedy than in these completely absurd times. And, uh, you know, both these plays are really impactful in their way. So that, that's what's coming up here at Shakespeare and Company. It felt like we were going to take a break or get a breather at the end of the summer, but we just keep going here. Well, you've got quite a company and it's a wonderful organization and you're the top guy there and you, you deserve all the accolades that you've gotten for running that place as well as you have. Well, thanks, Robert. We also have our Fall Festival of Shakespeare coming up where, you know, our, our teaching artists go out in normal years and direct Shakespeare in 10 high schools around the area. And then they bring them back the weekend before Thanksgiving and do them back to back to back to back to back wow. in three days. And uh, it's the most boisterous, other than your band playing in there and lifting the roof <laughs> off the place. This this this, act, this activity really does. So, But that will be, uh, we'll see what happens. We're, we're taking it day by day with this Delta deviant, as I refer to it, uh, and see, you know, we're keeping people safe. We're asking people that they show proof of vaccination now that they're masked inside and we have plenty of space for people to spread out and uh, we have a great fully updated ventilation system the air is fully exchanged in our theaters in about six minutes so uh, we feel pretty confident that people are going to feel safe and comfortable when they come see our show wonderful all right, we've 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 been talking with Alan Burroughs from Shakespeare and Company. Alan, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast and again for hosting my band this summer in that benefit concert. And now we're going to listen again to the song that I was playing underneath the introduction. It's called Stockbridge Fanfare, which I wrote for the town next to Lenox, Massachusetts, a place that I've uh, lived in for many, many years, and it represents really small-town America in general. So thanks so much, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band, at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com going to Stockbridge in Western Mass just below the Pittsfield line tucked in a corner just off the pike a bit like going No changes on Main Street all year, though Alice doesn't live there anymore. And Norman's moved just a few miles away, but the red lion still does roar. There's hills and valleys and mountain streams. I see them.
winter's harsh and the wind blows It can be quite rough at times Till spring arrives and the day lilies bloom And summer is simply July It's a peaceful place 